Throughout the history of motorsport, the drivers have been on the front line of racing, but often their performance depends entirely on a group of engineers. In a special podcast series, we are going to speak to the likes of Adrian Newey, Patrick Head and Gordon Murray about what it takes to engineer the greatest drivers in the history of our sport. Not only will we look at some of the groundbreaking technology they brought to Formula One, but we will delve into the minds of the best drivers the sport has seen. We hope you enjoy the series, Engineering Formula One's Drivers. Hello everyone and welcome to the Motorsport Magazine podcast. We've got another one in our series called Engineering Formula One's Drivers and we are joined by Sir Patrick Head. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us for this and Joe Dunn, the editor of Motorsport. Hello, my, my pleasure. I, I did a little bit of research in terms of all the drivers that you looked after at Williams and had driving for the team. And I mean, I'm, I literally just picked one letter from the alphabet, uh, S. Uh, Schechter, Schenken, Schlesser, Schumacher, Ralph, Ayrton Senna, Bruno Senna, Sorotkin, Stroll. I mean, the number of Formula One drivers you've been involved in um, is astonishing. So we're going to only be able to concentrate on a few today. And I'm actually going to open with a reader's question um, from Williams GP News. I don't think anything to do with Williams, but... Um, and they're asking, which Williams driver do you consider to be the best driver overall, and which one was your favourite to work with? Well, I think it's inevitable that I'm going to say Alan Jones was uh, the sort of favourite to work with because he was our first sort of outstanding and successful driver. Um, it's almost impossible to talk about the best. Uh, we had a lot of fantastic drivers and... Um, Generally, uh, as, as time went on, I suppose with a huge step in the Michael Schumacher days, the level of fitness and professionalism that the drivers had to rise to in order to be successful uh, changed a lot over the time. Uh, it wasn't that, I mean, if um, Alan Jones turned up at the track to test, he was on it every time he was out on the car. I'm not saying he was unprofessional. I think there is a picture of Williams, of Frank and Alan Jones sort of going off for a run together. But I think it was very much staged because Frank was a runner, but Alan most certainly uh, was not a runner. Um, in fact, um, uh, I don't think Alan liked exercise at all, but uh, massive stamina. I mean, I remember one time down at a test at Paul Ricard, uh, we did nearly a thousand kilometres in one day and he was pushing just as hard at the end as at the beginning but huge personal stamina. But uh, driving a Grand Prix car, uh, finishing off on that fitness side is a very interesting uh, thing because you could have somebody like Keki Rosberg who certainly, um, I think he Keki thought I was quite a, a tough um, engineer, but he was he was a wonderful person, Keki, to have in the team. Um, but he didn't like exercise either, and he smoked. But he was able to drive a qualifying lap every lap of the race if he could get a sniff of being at the front. Um, and yet you'd get somebody like Derek Daly, who was very, very fit, but used to sweat enormously. You could imagine that in the car, his muscles must have been totally tense the whole time, whereas Keki was totally relaxed while 
driving at the limit. So there's a big difference, I think, in the calories being burnt uh, in the cockpit by different types of of driver. But anyway, let's put Alan Jones as a as a favourite, um, and and many fantastic drivers. The I'm sure it was Frank who once said Frank Williams who said drivers are like light bulbs. You just you just plug them in. I think that was Frank. Do you? I mean, do you agree with that? That you know, after well, from an engineering side, I, I, I am not aware that uh, of Frank. I have seen that quote before and seen it credited to Frank. I, I certainly wasn't there when he said it. I think if Frank said it, um, it would have been. Uh, for some deliberate effect at the time, because Frank always had very close relationships with the drivers we had and generally got on with them very well. So uh, what impact he was trying to make with that statement, I don't know. Um, Drivers are human beings, uh, like anything else, uh, anybody else, and uh, they all have foibles. And I think Frank and I were probably criticized a number of times because with somebody like Alan uh, who I mentioned again from when we started um, Alan didn't really need an arm around his shoulders at all he was um, self-energizing if he didn't get down for long and if he do if he was down a bit he'd go off and have a few beers <laughs> and get rid of it uh, Keki uh, needed that and I think if we didn't get the best out of Keki it's because we didn't really understand that he wasn't quite as robust uh, as Alan Jones was mentally but through the time I think all drivers like to feel that the team is with them and uh, is open to any um, not complaints but open to any suggestions they might make that makes the car better or makes their life better just picking up on that um, can you remember what the impact that alan jones had on on the team was when when he first joined uh, he was a, a a named driver and, and you were a relatively young team did he did that affect how the team was uh i'd say enormously uh because um alan had won one race in the arrows it was slightly fortuitous but not totally he was he was quite definitely uh, you know a, a good line driver I don't think anybody would have put him in as grade A at the time when we took him on but certainly a, a top end grade B would have been how he would have been char- characterized uh, and we talked to Jochen Mass came very close to signing Jochen Mass um, we talked sadly to Gunnar Nielsen who was very interested as well, and sadly he became ill uh, and died soon afterwards, so that became not an option. Um, Alan turned up, I had one chat with him. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm sure he had other options, uh, but he was a decisive person and he didn't mess around. Uh, He just said, yep, okay, like this, they agreed to some. wouldn't have paid the bar bill these days but um uh and and boom he was the driver and i don't think we i mean i'm sure we treated him with respect but i don't think we thought we had a world champion coming into the team but very early on 
we realised we had somebody in the team who didn't mess about. Um, I mean, in personality, they weren't the same at all. But Nigel was very much the same as Alan. You know, if he was in the car, bang, helmet down, 100%. Um, and I think it sharpened the team up in a big way. We were still, in 1978, we were still learning how to make reliable cars. And that was one of our problems that year. We didn't finish many races, but we were we were learning that at the time. Looking through the sort of Williams driver history, it struck me that the, your drivers changed a lot. There was never a kind of run of three, four years when both of your drivers were the same drivers. Was that a conscious decision or was that is that just how the cards fell throughout history? Uh, it's a long time ago that I'm having to remember <laughs> on the thing, but it's... Um, I think it's just the way the cards fell. I mean, in 1979, where we had Clay Regazzoni, who was a wonderful guy, a uh, wonderful person to have in the team, and nothing would have been better than to have continued into 1980 with Clay. But the problem with Clay was um, he would qualify, on average, about a second a lap slower than Alan, which would put him second, third, fourth row. Um, by 20 laps into the race, he would be lapping just as quickly, if not quicker than Alan, and maybe close up uh, towards the end of the race. But I said to Frank, I remember very clearly um, saying to Frank, Frank, I can't guarantee we'll have the advantage in 1980 that we've got now in the latter half of 1979. So um, unless Clay can close up in qualifying, he's going to be qualifying mid to lower field, which is going to mean a problem. And that's and uh, Carlos Reutemann was pretty much at his wits end with Lotus because the Lotus 79 had really reached the end of its life because it didn't have any development because it all went into the Lotus 80. And the Lotus 80 proved to be a bit of a disaster. So Carlos was looking for an out. So it sort of naturally um, happened there. Going on beyond that, I think everybody at Williams is very aware of that time, is very aware that in the early 2000s or late 90s, when we had a world champion or a regular race winner in the lead car and brought in somebody younger in the other car, such as Damon alongside Alan Pross in 93, say, um, then those people learnt, the younger driver learnt an enormous amount about how to go about their work from the older. And part of William's fall from grace was when they ceased to recognise that fact and thought they could take on two young ones together and I think then they found because it's very difficult for the engineers to teach a driver how to do his job I mean it's not so much the driving of the car but how to go about their work in terms of getting the car um, somebody like Alan Prost it's not true to say he wasn't interested in qualifying because I know but Alan would would spend all of the practice running around on old tires lots of fuel in the car didn't worry him at all and yes okay when you took 
put some new tyres and took the fuel out, bang, he could do the lap time. But um, And the younger drivers, all they want is new tyres and low fuel the whole time so that they can impress people, which maybe is how they think they'll keep their job. So maybe the, the older ones are just more secure in their job. But when Williams stopped having one driver who could, uh, then I think they not only went down... Uh, obviously in performance on the track through the cars not being so good, but I think also the continuity amongst drivers uh, contributed to it. Mm. The, you were mentioning sort of late 90s and early 2000s. One driver who'd, who arrived in 2000 was obviously Jensen. Um, now, you know, we know he's world champion. Um, back then, there was sort of, you know, the stories of his kind of partying and, you know, the new Formula One life, but he was always a very sort of silky smooth driver um, that's been likened to Alan Pross and things. What, what were your memories of him? I think we were very sad to see Jensen move on and unfortunately he went to Benetton at a time when Benetton were struggling quite a lot with both en engine and car. Um, I wouldn't say in Jensen's first year that we saw an awful lot of the partying because I don't think probably Frank did a deal where he didn't pay him an awful lot of money so he probably wasn't <laughs> able to afford boats and uh, um, uh, and partying a lot uh, he was certainly a silky smooth driver and I think um, you can tell that I mean we had the first year of the BMW engine which was quite a powerful engine but very unreliable in the first year I think we had 56 unscheduled engine changes in in the year 2000 and those those were uh, changes not the usual change from practice to race on a Saturday afternoon these were unscheduled engine changes due to a blow-up or some sort of failure um, and yet we still finished third in the championship and I think Jensen qualified second or third at Spa ahead of Ralph Schumacher this is in his first year of Formula One. Well, you don't do that unless you're silky smooth um, at a circuit like Spa. So he was clearly outstanding. We liked him enormously, but we had an interest in Juan Pablo Montoya. And I think Frank didn't um, think Montoya would be ready for Formula One in 2000 I can't think why and did this deal with Chip Ganassi who was very happy to take on Montoya to do Indy and uh, I forget what the how well how the deal was done but anyway the deal was that we would guarantee that we would take Montoya back for 2001 uh, and that was sort of written into the contract um, so we were obliged to run Montoya meanwhile we could say I mean I think he went out and won the championship in his first year or something, 2000 at uh, Indy. He was certainly very quick and won, won at uh, Indianapolis in his first year, which is pretty extraordinary. Um, so we didn't think we were going back as a driver. Montoya was certainly going to be exciting. Um, but um, we were very sad not to be able to, but it was all tied up a bit earlier in contracts that uh, Jensen went off. And at various times during Jensen's career, um, there was talk again, and it, it actually went as far as a contract that had to be undone at a later stage for various reasons. 
that he was going to come back to Williams. But uh, he was a, he was a fantastic driver, Jensen, no doubt about it. These I've got some a uh, couple of readers' questions here, um, both from someone called Matt. Uh, he says, "Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I'd like to ask about Heinz Harold Frentzen. How close did you come to signing him for the remainder of the 1994 season after Senna's death, and why do you think he underachieved at Williams?" It's always um, slightly uh, controversial, this one, because people, obviously, when we uh, didn't continue with Damon Hill in 97, after winning, being world champion, winning the championship in 96, uh, it obviously, you know, the team came in for a lot of criticism, possibly rightly. Um, but uh, I am not aware that... Heinz Harold was an option uh, at the time that uh, of Ayrton Senna's death. I think David Coulthard was already contracted with us for testing, uh, even uh, even up to the time at Imola in 1994, uh, and um, he was he was quite young. But I think we had tested with him, and he was certainly quite quick. So, um, mind you, um, we, as you can imagine, uh, it was a, a massively difficult time, uh, sort of mentally. I mean, the idea of having somebody killed in one of our race cars, whether it be our fault or not, or whatever the reason was pretty shocking to everybody. Frank had been an admirer of Ayrton for a long time and and was quite close to him as a person. Um, so it was a pretty shocking time. I don't think we were thinking about being that adventurous in terms of going out and looking for um, a replacement driver. So it was pretty logical to go ahead with David Coulthard and David Coulthard was a, a very fine uh, driver and actually won won a race or two in our car I think that year um, so I don't think we looked at Heinz Harold and and in terms of driver choices that went wrong I can always slope my shoulders and say that would be Frank you see because <laughs> Frank was Frank was certainly the lead decision maker where drivers would concern he would mostly ask my opinion and I would give my opinion um, uh, I think I was fairly instrumental in taking on uh, Nigel Mansell because that went on for a really long time. That was in 1984 and I was ne desperately wanting to have a driver who had driven a good turbo engine, breathe Renault engine in the Lotus and Frank was talking to all these different drivers and I said, Frank, go with Nigel, he's driven, um, it, and I don't think at that time Nigel was, you know, there was that famous comment by Peter Waugh when Nigel had the accident in Monaco, so Nigel was not necessarily that highly rated, but I was desperate to have somebody that knew what a good turbo engine felt like, not for power, I'm talking about response and drivability, all that sort of thing, and certainly Nigel fit the bill and was, uh, in truth, Williams most uh, successful driver by a long, long way. Nigel won 31 Grand Prix in his career, 29 of them in a Williams. So he has to be hugely respected by all Williams people. I think speaking to Frank Durney in, the, you know, in another podcast in this series, 
Nigel, the great thing about Nigel was you, you knew when he was in the car, you were going to get everything out of what the car could do. But he was quite a difficult character out of it. And did you have to sort of manage him differently or did you just treat him like every other driver? I think, um, I think I had a pretty straightforward relationship with Nigel. I think I, w I had a reputation, deserved or not, of being fairly robust. So there were a few times I had to give Nigel a serious talking to. Um, but uh, I think we had a very good and open relationship. And uh, I was, uh, I get on very, very well with Frank Durney. And uh, we've always got on very well, but I wasn't, uh, Nigel, uh, Frank was given the license to express a few opinions by about Nigel in uh, a, a Williams film, and I do not sit in that position. Nigel uh, could be difficult at times, but he was a driver very much to be respected by Williams and all Williams personnel, because he was by far Williams' most successful driver. Just to jump in there on the on on Nigel, do you think? Uh, I mean, his physicality was such an important part of his driving style um, at the time. I mean, did you did that play into your decision when you took him on? Uh, no, because I wasn't aware of his physicality when you. Um, uh, I think Nigel's probably the same now. But when you, if you. Uh, shake hands with Nigel, you've got to sort of count the fingers on your hands afterwards. He likes to impress his physicality on you right from the start when you shake hands. He's immensely strong and he had immensely strong uh, upper arms and uh, in fact he used to drive with a tiny little steering wheel and uh, you would have to be, particularly with the cars before power steering, you would have to be immensely strong to drive uh, a Formula One race car with uh, the size of steering wheel that Nigel did. But uh, I remember one time seeing um, uh, an onboard camera film with Nigel driving, and more so than I have seen with any other driver, uh, the speed with which he responded and corrected opposite lock and straightened up again was so fast it was like a blur i'm sure if you could s slow down the film you'd see his his speed of reaction which was why he was able to go so close to the edge in wet and dry conditions because his speed of of uh, i'm not sure about his reaction speed which i'm sure was certainly good but the speed of which he applied and and took off corrective lock was incredibly quick um i remember one time at spa when it was wet and drying out, it must have been 85, 86 anyway. But throughout the first and the second practice, I remember for most of one practice session, he was six seconds, not one or two, six seconds quicker than the second fastest driver. And it was because the circuit was wet and dry and he was taking all sorts of extraordinary lines, which he had a habit of doing in wet conditions, uh, keeping off the rubbered in parts of the track to find the grip. Uh, but he, his passage from a wet bit to a dry bit and back again, uh, his ability to control the car very rapidly was just outstanding. Meanwhile, I suspect a certain amount his bravery level as well. You know, a few other drivers <laughs> were saying, saying, well, I'm sure it's going to be drier later. But N Nigel was, you know, 
he was he was a serious driver, serious. You know, I'd, people always used to like to put this sort of journeyman uh, thing onto him in, uh, in terms of a bit like they did on Graham Hill relative to Jimmy Clark, uh, a little bit onto Damon as well, which was actually lazy journalists because it was like carrying on a sort of an idea from the past and anybody that saw... Damon racing Michael in 1994 in Japan and beat him in wet conditions uh, like for like um, would have to realise that Damon was a top, top level talented driver. Um, so, but Nigel was, impl- I think people corrected it after a time, but I would put my, Nigel right in there with Prost and Senna, same, same level. Mm. The FW14B, um, the I was speaking to some people. The obviously Nigel was saying that when you turned in, it, it was quite hard to trust the car, and Ricardo teammate obviously struggled with that and was was never quite as quick as Nigel in in that active car. Do you think his bravery as a driver really actually made that car and him just a perfect couple? Yes, I do really. I remember in. Uh um, I forget when they changed Silverstone such the Beckett's instead of being uh, the corner that it was became this combination of bends that's there now and I think it was either 91 or 92 that they made that change um, and Ni- I remember Nigel going round there and talking to him uh, after one of the practice sessions and he was he would just say uh, oh don't worry Patrick I've got another second in my pocket it's 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 just through that series of corners I've got to learn to trust the car he said the car will do it I know it but I've got to learn psychologically to trust the car through there and when I learn it he said there'll be another second because I'll be 10 miles an hour faster under the hangar straight and sure enough in the next practice session bang that second was just just there and uh, he always was very um, pragmatic about you know there was never any macho for whatever people might have thought from the outside there was never any macho impression in terms of certainly in his talking to me about saying you know that how brave he was or anything like that he wouldn't he he would be pretty straightforward you can remember he was quite experienced by that time and done a lot of years of formula one but he was always pretty straightforward of saying you know when i was very concerned that we weren't fastest or something and he'd he'd say don't worry patrick there's another three quarters of a second there he said you could you can improve the car half a second but i've got another three quarters of a second in my pocket and sure enough it was always there the motorsport shop is currently offering an exclusive 10 percent discount to podcast listeners Available until the end of July, you can get 10% off a piece of Anthony Donson art signed by Nigel Mansell himself. The piece is called Champion Elect, Williams FW14B. There's also a brilliant DVD on the birth of Williams and its rise to greatness for just £15.99. Simply go to the shop and add POD10 at the checkout to claim your discount. I'm just going to 
um, ask another couple of readers' questions. Um, there's one here from uh, someone called Admiral Buzzard. I don't know whether they are real Admiral or, or whether that is more of an internet name. Good um, name, anyway. Yes, exactly. Uh, there's a, there's, he's asked a couple of questions, but the second one, um, from a personal viewpoint, which race driver was the best from an engineering point of view? And how much of a difference did their technical feedback make to the team and the car? Um, it's quite an interesting one, because I suppose it's, it's not who was the quickest or, or best at setting the car up. It's uh, an engineering driver. Well, we had a few drivers who thought they were engineers <laughs> and, and uh, really were only tickling the surface. They didn't, they didn't really understand uh, the mechanics. But um, uh, Alan Prost was meticulous, um, but it was all based on past experience, of which he obviously had quite a lot by the time he came to us in 1993. Uh, and that caused him a lot of anguish, because you've got to remember, he was driving an active ride car, the FW15, the follower on from the uh, FW14B. And because it didn't behave exactly as he had been used to, um, it didn't have a front anti-roll bar, it didn't have a rear anti-roll bar, you couldn't change uh, the roll couple on the car. You could change all sorts of other things. Ride heights, you could change the ride heights around the corner in different stages of the corner. You could change the roll, the amount it rolled into the corner like a speedboat and things, but you couldn't change the relative roll couple on the system we had. Uh, and that caused Alan, because he, the, his whole data bank of experience wasn't really applicable. So there was a lot of anguish for him through the year and I, I suspect and the fact of the matter is because we only ran uh, Ayrton for a very short number we did the Brazil where he spun much to his upset in the race and then uh, was it Aida one in Japan where he was punted off by one of the Ferrari drivers at the first corner I think and then we went to Imola, a very sad event. But he was meticulous. He would not give you any comment on the car until he'd seen the tyre temperatures. Um, he, I, I suspect he would have been out, the outstanding technical driver had we been able to work together for longer. Um, but... Um, uh, Mostly the drivers were, their technical knowledge was just based on the experience they'd built up from previous cars, and sometimes it was to detriment. Uh, Terry Bootson was a very fine driver that we won two or three Grand Prix with, but he had been at Benetton beforehand, and the Benetton he'd been driving had was run very, very stiff and with anti-roll bar stiffnesses that you just couldn't believe they were so stiff. They were, they were stiffer than the chassis could cope with. So when he was saying, I want a stiffer front anti-roll bar, I'd have to show him the curves and say, look, Terry, <laughs> you know, you, you've got to ask me to raise the chassis stiffness. By, but um, uh, so it would have meant that the car was 
very, very hard work to drive because you have a car that stiff, it's flicking around all over the place and doesn't ride ripples without needing lots of steering input. And we tried very hard to get Thierry to uh, run a softer car and he just wouldn't have it. I mean, he, he, he didn't... He wanted it to feel like a go-kart and he didn't feel comfortable at all if it was softer. And to give you, um, at the end of 1990, uh, we took on Nigel Mansell again and we went down to Paul Ricard and uh, at that time with Renault, we were using the Renault garage which was on the Ricard straight. And uh, this was in the car that was the FW13B and... Nigel had been with Ferrari for a couple of years, uh, one year or two years, probably two years, and um, he went out of the Renault garage and onto the main straight of Ricard, and I could, a wonderful thing when we were testing there on the end, you could hear the car all the way around the track, so if you made a change that made it quicker, I could tell almost to the tenth of a second how much quicker it would be from when he'd been able to get on just listening to the car. Anyway, he went out and he drove around. You could tell he was attacking a few corners quickly. And he came back and he came in down the straight and then he backed off and came straight in. He hadn't even done a lap. He came straight into the garage, drove up into the garage, climbed out of the car, came over to me and he said, Patrick, come over here, sit down on the thing. And he said, Patrick, what are you doing? What are you doing? This car is undrivable. It's a, and he said, what are the springs on the car? And I said, well, they've got this on the front, this on the back. He said, well, divide that by three. Um, what have you got anti-roll bars on the car? So I showed him what anti-roll bar, what roll rate it was. And he said, well, throw the rear one away and let's divide the front roll stiffness by five. Out we went onto the track, and by the end of that test, we were over three seconds quicker than we'd been at the French Grand Prix on the same track beforehand. By that, it doesn't mean it was a good car. The problem with that car is the front wing had separation problems, and it was so the, the result from the driver was to set the car up incredibly stiff so it, the, the front wing didn't move up and down hardly relative to the ground. Nigel had a speed of correction of his hands that he could probably deal with that a bit more than Thierry but he wasn't saying to me the car is good but um, you know we, we were running around with a car that you could actually see move on the track so when you say is there a difference between drivers enormously but with Thierry uh, we, we had one significant number of races not, not enough but uh, um, and uh, but the car was just not being set in a way that it was drivable, really. Mm. Now, we, d we must move on to sort of to more of the engineering side of things. You, uh, you obviously started in the Navy, um, but did you have people, you know, technical or engineers in Formula One that you looked up to when you were younger and, and that's why you ended up in the sport or was it a different reason to that? I don't think I was too aware of... I mean, my father raced... Uh, quite successfully he was a, a professional army officer although I hardly ever saw him in uniform because he was after the second world war he did technical course equivalent to an engineering degree and he was working up in the war office and stuff so he was like a commuter in a suit from we were living in sort of what was called stockbroker belt you know between Woking and West Byfleet um, and uh, 
he was racing then. I suppose that might have uh, influenced me a bit, but I, I didn't. We didn't get when he stopped racing. We didn't have autosports or anything like that in the house. Uh, I think my fascination was always with engineering rather than with motor racing. And in truth, even when I uh, had left the Navy, gone through university and worked at Lola Cars, I was probably more knowledgeable or more familiar with um, sports car racing or whatever Lola's were doing. Uh, when I first got a call from Frank Williams, um, after I'd left Lola's, uh, I, I had heard his name, but I hadn't been following Formula One at all. I wasn't a Formula One nut uh, at all. Um, so, um, no, it was, it was the engineering and problem solving that attracted me, and I think all the way through my career. I've never really been that interested in uh, the you know the actual racing of them. Well, right, thinking that you you met Mike Hawthorne when you were very young, though. I did. You've heard that story. I, I, 1958, uh, after Mike Hawthorne had won his uh, world championship, um, my father and mother had a. We had quite a nice big house along what was called Woodham Lane. Uh, which was from the Woking Six Crossroads along towards Byfleet. And um, I think my father and mother always liked a good party. And in fact, 1950s motor racing, all the sort of Duncan Hamiltons, you know, the sort of sports car group. And of course, Mike Hawthorne uh, racing Jaguars or whatever uh, was sort of part of that sports car group as well. Um, anyway, they had a, g a great party. Uh, not in, you know, Mike Hawthorne was just one of the people there. It was a party they had at the end of the year. And there must have been a lot of motor racing people there. Um, not so much Formula One, but probably all the sports car ones. I think my father retired at the end of 1957. And I was ill with flu in bed. And I was making, I was 12, and I was making a Keelcraft chipmunk. Um, one of the ones with a rubber band and a propeller um, and I had the board on my bed uh, with the gluing together all this balsa wood and uh, sometime during the evening the door opened and this very tall blonde fellow came in sat down on the bed and started talking to me about aeroplanes uh, and he told me that he had a chipmunk and he had a full glass of whiskey and soda and he said to me um, uh, with your cold this will probably do you good so there was I supping on a whiskey and a large whiskey and soda and uh, he said um, he was he was uh, fantastic to talk to and he uh, said that he'd got a chipmunk and a tiger moth and that he uh, kept them at Fair Oaks and he said do you want do you want to go for a flight and I said do I you know yes I do and he said well don't I'll, I'll take you up in the in the, I think probably it was the tiger moss he was going to take me up in, and uh, shows how little one knows about the world when, because um, it was sh shortly after that, it wasn't in many weeks after that party, right at the end of 58, um, that he was killed. And when I heard he was killed, 
I think uh, I felt much more annoyance that he wasn't going to take me up in his aeroplane than sadness because of be. But it just shows the, you know, how little at twelve year olds you know you know about life. But um, yes, now Mike fed me a. Uh, most of a glass of whiskey and soda at the age of twelve, which I'm sure did my I'm sure did my cold a lot of good. So I was sort of steeped in um, sort of motor racing, but I'd say after my father retired, and until I left school, I mean, at, at school I was involved with somebody else, and we were going to build this hill climb car in the workshop with a supercharged Norton motorcycle engine. Anyway, I don't think we ever, we have never got to the thing of finishing it. I think we may have laid, laid out some chassis rails or something. But, um, so I was always interested in the engineering side, yeah. The, you know, you were you were involved in Formula One for, for so long and, you know, still have a bit of involvement with Williams. There's so many sort of engineering solutions that you came up with during, you know, your full-time role at, at Williams. Are there any that stick out that you're particularly proud of. It can be this, even the smallest thing that we've never heard of or wouldn't have known about on a car or something bigger as, as an entire car. Well I, well, I mean, there's obviously lots of different things. And the part of the... Um, because I was uh, the initiator of the company with Frank, with Frank being the majority shareholder, but I was a shareholder in the company from a very early stage. And I always felt a responsibility. You know, it wasn't, you know, look how clever I am. I'm going to do something really different and really new because, you know, there were a few designers. Um, you know, yes, we produce better and worse cars, but there were a few designers that came up with ideas that either did succeed in breaking or nearly broke their their company. Uh, and I always felt a serious responsibility to uh, produce a reasonable enough car. But um, when I was at Lola's, uh, Eric Broadley, who was a really super, super guy and very good. I mean, John Barnard, uh, oh, I gather, is going to come in and do a talk. I'm sure he'll talk very highly of Eric Broadley, who got on with John very well and got and got John involved in all sorts of projects. Uh, John was at Lola's a year before me. Um, and um, but Eric was he, he, he almost was if um, he was thinking that suspension geometry cured all. So he was always changing suspension pickup points. And at that time, cars had um, long lower wishbones and very short top wishbones so one had to design the chassis or the or the rear suspension mountings to come way out into the airstream uh, and I didn't because I was trying to persuade Eric because um, I'd gone to Lola's just after I'd got my engineering degree and I don't think there were many people involved in motor racing at that time who'd got any sort of degree you know who, who were reasonably strong on mathematical calculations and I was trying to persuade Eric that the small difference in kinematics in his suspension geometry chains were minimal in comparison to the elastic <laughs> deflections of of uh, some of the suspension mountings we had to design in order to find his his pickup points but I didn't succeed so after I left 
Lola's, I got involved in some cars and got rid of this, all the stuff extending out from gearboxes and mounted wishbones close in to the centre line of the car. And, and uh, I think I was probably the first person uh, doing that. And uh, I got rid of uh, putting uh, CV joints outboard, integrating the CV joint with a lot of small stuff, but equally things like when we were with Honda in the early days with Honda 83 there was a lovely chap called Alf Briggs who I'm sure is uh, gone now but he was from the motorcycle world but he was Honda trusted and liked him and had done for many years so Alf was a an important advisor for them and he came into my office one time right at the beginning when we first started with Honda and said this is a Honda motorcycle barrel out of their racing motorcycle and uh, these are the selector forks maybe you can use them somewhere in a you know that idea in in your um, Formula One transmissions and I said oh yeah thanks Alf that's great and then they went on to my windowsill and sat there for a bit of time and then when a, a nice chap who's still about lives in Bristol called John Piper came to work for us um, I said to John, let's have a look at doing a semi-automatic transmission, a sequential transmission, like a motorcycle. But I don't think I envisage quite the potential for it. The thing is, uh, with the sequential, the movement to actuate it via a cable in the cockpit was simply fore and aft, whereas in those days you had to leave a lot of room for the, you know, the H-gate, and if you were using a six-speed box or something, you had a long way across, so you had all these cars with big bulges on the right side of the cockpit for the driver's hand. Um, so with John Piper, I said, well, let's do this, and we'll be able to put a simple push-pull cable in the cockpit, so we won't have to put such a big bulge on the side. And with John, we worked away and we used a Suzuki escapement um, and upsized it a bit. And um, based on this Honda barrel, and I drew out a, um, a sort of test box, just not, not to go racing with, but just a test box for it. Um, and then we had a chap called James Robinson who came and worked with us. And James, in 1986 or 1987, was telling me that he thought um, hydraulic actuator of the gearbox would be the way to go and started designing and actually did get made a gear case for the car with the Moog valves mounted hard onto it. And I was a bit suspicious about it because... Um, I thought hard mounting electrical pieces onto a gearbox which vibrates like hell because of the straight cut gears inside. I was very dubious about it. So it never actually made the car. Um, but then uh, I think probably at the, about the time that John came out with his uh, Ferrari, the, was it 89 Ferrari, maybe 90 Ferrari, which had a... Um, semi-automatic gearbox, a paddle-operated gearbox. Um, and that struck me as a really good idea. Um, but I didn't want to... The way John had done it uh, was a conventional gearbox with a potentiometer in each selector rail. So it, it had to know when one gear was out of gear and, and into the other one. I think it was quite unreliable to begin with, but they got it sorted out in the end. So we did the first... and And in fact, the sequential barrel and using Moog valves 
had been done some years before, but we pulled it all together, and and so we did the first sequential, um, of which everybody from then on started it doing it that way than the, instead of the way that uh, Ferrari had done it. So uh, the active ride program. I mean, Frank. I, I think between Frank and I, Frank worked on sort of R and D as well as doing a lot of the races. Um, but he was he sort of ran the wind tunnel program and was supposed to be more working on R and D. So I think it was a sort of joint. Let's have a look. I think AP Automotive Products came along to us and said, "Look, we've been working on this um, hydraulic ride system, like a Citroen system, but with rather more control over the car." Uh, but we've actually decided to give it up. It's too expensive for us, and we don't see a return. But we think it might be useful for you for your uh, race car. And so we took that, um, and Frank did the installation for it on an FW09, and that must be 85, probably, early 85. In fact, it never ran for very long. It had a mechanical control system, what we call the nodding dog, uh, and um, very basic um, but I think it blew a turbo up and the whole thing went on fire. Nothing to do with the active ride, so it didn't run very long. But it was it persuaded us that um, that it was uh, the way to go, but we needed electro-hydraulic control on it. So it was a frank overseen project, and we got the electronics from uh, a guy in America, um, a nice guy. It was very um, basic electronics, and we ran an active ride car for the first time, Monza 87, with um, Nelson Piquet. And he did actually win the race, but quite honestly, the active ride was not at a level that uh, justified racing it at that time. And uh, uh, I think I think Ayrton nearly... I think Ayrton was running the active ride Lotus, actually, but um, Nelson just beat him at Monza in 87. Then when we lost Honda, which is a, another story that I won't bore you with, uh, we were quite determined that we were not going to be pushed down to the back running a Judd engine. So we threw everything at the 1988 car, and it was basically a step two car, the, uh, too far. It had active ride, a transverse um, gearbox, all, all sorts of things on the car. Um, but it was a bit of a step too far, and we had to... Uh, the problem, one of the many problems, the control system was inadequate. Uh, the whole uh, control strategy was not adequate. And uh, I think Frank must have left at the end of 87. And by that time, we'd brought in Steve Wide on hardware electronics and Paddy Lowe. But we kept develop. We took it out at Silverstone 1988. Uh, and converted the car to passive and I think Nigel actually finished second in that race which was a bit of a turnaround because we were struggling beforehand but um, the the active road program we came thing interesting and when we started um, it was all about trying to have better suspension on the car thinking of the suspension but in truth uh, by that time we well understood that keeping the ride height low at low speeds allowed exhaust-blown diffuser to work a hell of a lot better because um, normally a car with normal springs would be quite high at low speeds, but being able to run the car low at low speeds meant we had a lot more grip. Um, 
and uh, so we'd understood really the benefits of it by that time. So we did an FW13 active test car. Paddy Lowe ran that test team. And then there was a big decision. We ran the FW14 in 1991. Had the gearbox been reliable at the beginning of the season, we would have won the championship that year, but it wasn't stupid, simple thing that we solved it with that was causing a problem. Uh, but once we solved that problem, Nigel won a lot of races, but uh, Ayrton beat us to the championship. So it was a big decision to bring the active ride car in because we didn't want to be clever dicks and come up with a car that was half a second better, but dropped out of half the races. We were definitely, we were quite sore of not winning the championship in 91. We were very determined to win the championship in 92. And it would have been, so we did an enormous amount of work on reliability. And uh, we had people in the factory, a chap called David Lang, who's retired from Williams now, a chap from, called Simon Wells, who was on the operational side, who uh, um, you know, there was an enormous amount of work done by many people to get the system reliable. And we raced it through 92 and basically the same system uh, through 93 as well. The, uh, there's a question here. There are other things that yeah. I can claim some well, credit for, but I <laughs> yeah. don't want to go on. I mean, the thing was at Williams is, uh, I think partly, and this sounds like being a bit silly, but you know, I was I was lucky enough to be born in a what would be in those days called a nice cosy little upper class uh, home. I went to a public school. Uh, I was probably, you know, a, a self confident git, but. Um, uh, but equally, as a shareholder in Williams, I wasn't looking over my shoulder the whole time about people that might threaten my position. So I was really happy when we found people like the Frank Durnies, um, many people afterwards who were very good at what they did. I didn't feel in any way threatened. Uh, so we actually had some fantastic people through our hands, some of which I look back on. I mean, we had Ross Braun, who came to Wolf as a machinist from um, the uh, nuclear play Harlow, Harwell, rather, um, then came to Williams in our prototype and test department. And it was only after he left Williams uh, and went to um, Force and then went to Arrows, that it became clear that he was much more capable. It wasn't that I'd tried to put him down. I just hadn't realized that how capable he was. And But we had a lot of fantastic people that came through Williams. And it was a wonderful working environment because all these people were contributing. Um, and uh, so a lot of the things, I don't for one moment think that I came up with all these things on my own. We had a lot of people that came through, a lot of whom contributed to many of these things, of which Frank Durney was one of them. Was it a kind of conscious effort to create that sort of creative ecosystem whereby ideas were entertained and acted on, or, or, was, it, or, or was it just an accident? I think I realised, we realised, that being successful in Formula One was a technology problem and therefore you had to push technology and ideas. I mean we were the first company, when I'd worked at Lola's, Peter Wright had built and was running 
a wind tunnel, what was referred to as a quarter-scale wind tunnel. It was a four-foot by five-foot working section, an open-flow wind tunnel. Uh, the working section was of similar size or the same size as the Donald Campbell Tunnel at University College, in which Peter first twigged about um, ground effect and when he was at Lotus, well, actually when he was at BRM, but then took it on to Lotus. Um, but I was aware that the Jackson brothers, who had specialised mouldings that did all the bodywork for uh, for Lola's, had this wind tunnel, had unbolted it and taken it down. It was quite a big piece of equipment. For the 1979-07, um, all of that car was based on a week in the Campbell Tunnel, um, in October 1978 and uh, uh, it was very clear that without a wind tunnel you couldn't really, without a moving ground wind tunnel you couldn't really develop your car or, or even support R&D and design of your car. Um, so because I knew that uh, I rang Peter Jackson and said have you still got that wind tunnel you had there and he said yes we have it's all unbolted and out the back and I said can we buy it and uh, he uh, he said yes eight thousand pounds so for eight thousand pounds we sent up a, a low loader and brought this tunnel which was quite a big and we took on another unit in what was called Station Road um, industrial estate in Didcot and built this tunnel up in there it didn't have a balance of any order. It didn't have a decent drive motor. I think when it was up at Specialized, it was driven by a Volkswagen engine. We we were able to buy a 100 kilowatt motor from Imperial College, I think, and we installed that. Um, between Ross and Frank and Simon Wells, they designed the moving ground and we got that built between, uh, and Frank uh, was quite good on the electronics side. We got a fantastic balance from a company whose name I can't remember from up above, and Frank uh, installed the data, Frank Durney installed the data acquisition equipment, um, and all of a sudden there we had a tool in which we could find seconds a lap. Um, on the car, so and we were easily the first people to serious. Well, certainly the first people to get into uh, a moving to have our own um, moving ground tunnel. Lotus had used the Peter Wright at Lotus had used the Donald Campbell tunnel. Um, so I think, yeah, we were well aware that, um, and and we wanted to push technology. Equally, we were we were a bit techno geeks you know Frank was a techno geek I was a bit of a techno geek so we 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 loved the technology I, I was trying to extend the life of the Cosworth engine because people were starting 81 82 well from 77 were starting to run turbo engines every year they gained 100 horsepower and we didn't gain anything so we we actually got into an engine development program um, which Cosworth sadly refused to get involved with so we did it with uh, John Judd and at the time we started our engines had 470 horsepower which was what uh, the engines had by the time Keki was racing in 82 with engines Judd modified with us we had a chap that worked with us doing 
valve gear design we we had about 540 horsepower from our engine so and this was just trying to keep the dfv going because we couldn't buy a turbo engine from anywhere so equally i got into doing a, a cvt um with the idea of getting more out of the engine because you could keep it nearer its peak power all the time and in fact i think the engine life might have been a bit of a problem but so we were into all sorts you know we had cvts running in the factory on recirculation rigs we were we were into where's it going how are we going to stay up the front when all these you know ferrari were getting into turbo as well and then bmw came in you could see the way it was going but we 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 didn't find an engine until we met up with honda in 83 for only 3 pounds for three months, you can get unlimited access to all of Motorsport Magazine's content, both online and in print. To sign up, just go to motorsportmagazine.com forward slash trial, T-R-I-A-L. It's interesting, you mentioned earlier, saying that, you know, Eric Broadley and Lola, you know, so many people have to be thankful for, you know, to him actually giving them a, a foot into the world of motorsport, but, you know, in Williams, is very much the same. The number of big names that, that you've mentioned that started mm. there and went on to, you know, big careers um, is, is wonderful. You mentioned Honda just then. I've got a question here from David Scar um, saying, uh, Sir Patrick, I'm very interested to hear your views on your relationship with Honda, especially in 86 and the fabulous FW11. How do you rate their engineering prowess? Um, and he goes on to say, uh, do you think Frank's tragic accident had any bearing on their des decision to withdraw their engines from Williams? Um, thank you for the wonderful memories that uh, you helped to create in that F1 era. That's uh, a lot of questions in there. It, I've, the, actually, I've missed the, about the, three of them out. Yeah, <laughs> the, Honda, the Honda side was very interesting because at the time we first got together with Honda, um, they had been very successful in Formula 2 with um, Ron Toronek and uh, I think won the championship at least maybe two years in a row with their V6 2.0-litre. And that engine was designed by, uh, I'm probably going to have a bad effort at his first name, Nubuhiko, I think, Kawamoto, who had been one of the mechanics on, uh, although Honda had a habit of having mechanics who had engineering degrees and had been through Tokyo University, but he'd been one of the mechanics on the one litre Formula 2 uh, engine, the one with little hairspring valve springs that uh, Denny Holm and Jack Brabham were very successful in, I forget the year, but 60s at some point. And by that time, Kawamoto was a, was a senior man, not the top man at that time, but he was a senior man. But he was a bit of an insomniac, and he designed the engine on a drawing board that he had alongside his, his bed at home, and he'd wake up in the middle of the night and, and do a bit of drawing. So it was very much a sort of hobby engine, hugely successful at, uh, in Formula 2, and then they decided to take it, and then they went with Spirit, and I think Spirit won another uh, championship with it in Formula 2. And then they decided to go on to Formula 1. So they produced a short-stroke version of that 2-litre engine. And basically, Spirit didn't really have the funding, and also they because they'd been a quite a small, you know, 15, 20-person team they were really quite small they didn't really have the resources to get involved in doing formula one but they did run a car 
uh, which I think um, I'm not. I think it started one or two races, but I think in eighty in eighty three, and I think early in eighty three, um, Kawamoto realised that Spirit wasn't going to get the job done, and Honda um, had a a good habit. But you've got to remember how far away and how disconnected Japan was at that time from Europe and the rest of the world, but. They'd had a very good relationship with Jack Brabham, um, and uh, obviously because of Jack Brabham, a good relationship with Ron Toronek. And it was Ron Toronek and Jack Brabham who said, why don't you go down to Williams? Um, and, uh, you know, it wasn't us persuading them. Uh, Jack Brabham sadly gone now, and Ron uh, certainly getting on. Um, they, they said to Honda, you should go and see Williams. And so by middle of the year uh, we had done a deal with Honda to do Formula One in 1984 and I was quite I mean you know it was a it was a learning experience you could not believe because the engine a block uh, what would be called a short engine turned up um, block with a sump on it two cylinder heads no inlet manifold and no I think there were three inlet manifolds in another cardboard box high and low uh, no exhaust system, two turbochargers in another cardboard box, um, and no personnel, no engineer or anything like it. Just turned up at our factory from a, a van, and so we, at that time the communication was by telex. You remember the da -da 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 chattering away down below in the front office. So I sent them a message by telex saying, "Could you please advise for a heat balance for the engine?" Uh, send us information on how many kilowatts we've got to dissipate in the intercoolers and radiators and um, and tell us about the exhaust lengths, diameters of pipes and things. And they came back. I've still actually got the facts somewhere. Uh, please design as you think. <laughs> so uh, we were racing our 08C then, um, our rapidly produced flat bottom car because you've got to remember what was called the ground effect cars got banned at the end of 82 um a battle between bernie and what was then fisa i suppose um but um so one of our engineers a chap called gary thomas who is still very much about he used to race motorcycles badly and come off them very often, including at the Island Man. So one was always worried about losing him. But he sat down and thought he'd better learn about uh, compressors and turbochargers and uh, things and working away on the heat balance with me dotting in with him every now and then. And we worked out for ourselves um, what we need, and we produced this very basic car, the FW09. It wasn't a beauty to look at, but um, and it wasn't hugely successful. I think we won uh, very surprisingly down to Keki. Um, if I say more than anything, I mean solely at Keki's door, we won in uh, was it Las Vegas, the, the where the track was breaking up in 1984. Um, but it was usually a question of how far we'd get before the pistons came out the exhaust pipe because it still had sort of Formula 2 pistons in there and didn't have all the piston cooling. There was, a, But it also had an incredibly low compression ratio, like 6 to 1 or something. 
Um, so if you put your foot on the throttle when the engine had been off throttle for a bit, you had nothing. Uh, I mean, you might have 150 horsepower and then all of a sudden the turbos would kick in. So how Keki drove it, I have no idea. Um, and we were having a terrible time in 84 with, um, as I say, you'd, you'd have aluminium metal sprayed neatly down the inside of the exhaust systems, would be like a nice skin, and it would be the pistons that had come out in <laughs> melted form. Uh, so it was a question of how far we got. But we learned a huge amount, and Kawamoto himself turned up at Zanvoort, and he realised that the way it was being done, because it was some of their motorcycle mechanics, we had a lovely guy called Hadji, um, and, and sometimes they'd be taking these engines apart. And I remember one time at Montreal, there were six of them, three down one side and three down the other side, changing the bearing caps and the bearing shells on an engine at the track. You know? It's a bit like motorcycle. It was very different. But anyway, Kawamoto turned up at Zandvoort and thought, this is, we are, we are not, taking this seriously and we're getting a bad reputation by uh, not being reliable and from then on he went back um, and put on a very unusual Japanese and the chap being very tall and very big called Yoshitoshi Sakurai lo lovely name who was a very authoritarian project leader and Katsumi Ichida was brought in as the chief engine designer and it all started getting serious from then on and you could see uh, didn't have huge impact in 84 but by the time we got into 85 you could tell things were coming up in a big way and I think if you look at Montreal 1985 in the FW10 car um, all of a sudden we had the D-spec engine turn up and all of a sudden we were reliable and we had competitive fuel consumption and we were a serious force from then on. I think we won the last four races of 1985, two for Keki and two for Mansell. And uh, then 86, uh, Frank had heard that Keki was going to McLaren around about Austria 85 and I think uh, Keki had told Frank, and it wasn't something he could persuade him to change his mind. It was a done deal uh, with Keki at McLaren. And uh, Brabham's were in trouble because they'd done that lay down flat car and um, it was unreliable and not very quick. So Nelson wanted out of Brabham's so it fitted in. So Frank did a contract with Nelson in the car park, in the car in Austria and then at this test we were referring to earlier before the season started in 86 Frank had a bad accident broke his neck was in a hospital bed for pretty much all of the earlier part of 86 I think clinically died three or four times and Ginny Frank's wife was being advised to let him go but she literally he owes the rest of his life then for her because he kept filling his lungs with liquid and she would jump on top of him and pump his lungs out and whatever and the doctors were saying to her let him go let him go and she refused and uh, anyway um, so there was no Frank at all um, and we were going out racing and all of a sudden there was Nigel not always but some of the time beating Nelson uh, so Nelson uh, I was 
being told that Nelson's contract... Nelson said to our Sheridan Thin, sadly gone now, but um, my contract says I'm the number one driver and must have priority. Uh, so I said, well, can I have a look at the contract? And I read through the contract. It didn't say that anywhere in there. Um, so um, I don't think it even said that he would have the spare car. But anyway, it all got Frank. And Nelson went down to Frank in the hospital bed when he was literally croaking. And was, you know, obviously everybody looking after their own interests. Nelson was saying, Frank, Frank, whatever. <laughs> Frank was on his back with pipes going into his nose and whatever. Anyway, Frank called me to his hospital bed and said I was to give Nelson priority treatment, which was quite difficult because here we had Nigel, uh, who was seriously competitor to Nelson. So I think from then on, Nelson had the spare car with him. But we didn't deliberately, um, you know, we basically ran all the cars the same. Uh, and Nigel, through his speed, was often beating Nelson. We then went to the last Grand Prix of the year. We'll get on to 87 in a minute. Thing. And uh, we had had three or four tyres explode in testing earlier and I'd been talking to Goodyear and say look the problem is the tyres are just not strong enough and they had said no 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 nobody else is having a problem it's only your car and I said well look we've probably got more power than anybody else and we're able to trade that off with more downforce so all we're doing is you are seeing the problem with us before you see it with anybody else and I have to say they were not really very responsive and then we had the tyre explode with uh, Nigel and uh, that put him out. Then Nelson was in a position where he was going to win the World Championship um, and I was in a position where I could see that Nelson's tyres before the end of the race uh, were going to be beyond the life that Nigel's tyres and I couldn't guarantee that it was going to if it was going to burst, it was going to burst in a place that was going to be benign and he wasn't going to hit the wall. So I called Nelson in to change tyres. I didn't need to change them for the life of the... There was perfectly enough rubber on them to finish the race. But I called Nelson in to... Uh, and I was sort of on the pit wall, obviously in charge. Uh, to be fair to Nelson, he never, ever criticised me for that decision. He came in, changed tyres, went out again. He closed right up on Alan Prost, and I think he was only two or three seconds behind by the end of the race, but Prost won the race. I had to fly up to Japan, to Honda after that. We'd won the Constructors' Championship, um, and uh, but hadn't won the Drivers' Championship. They were pretty gutted. Uh, I got a sort of dressing down from this Yoshitoshi Sakurai. Um, he, Kawamoto was very clever because he was always the nice one and Yoshitoshi was the tough one and he would keep the two separate. He'd never be in the same room when Yoshitoshi was trying to give me a hard time. But um, they were definitely very concerned about staying with Williams, with Frank, because they couldn't see where the leadership they, they knew I was the technical leader and had been beforehand, but they didn't know where the business leadership would be because Frank was still pretty weak later in the, in the even later in the year. And um, anyway, we went on into 87. Um, I should have, I think Frank came back and he was, you know, Frank was fighting his own battle 
of getting back into it uh, and sort of prove to himself, prove to the outside world that he could still run the business side of the team despite being in a wheelchair, uh, I should have sat down with Frank and, and said, do realise, Frank, Honda are not happy about you. You've got to find some way to keep them happy. And uh, McLaren had done a deal with... They were very impressed with Ayrton Senna. You've got to remember for 87, Honda had been supplying Lotus with the engines. In fact, finishing off is going on a bit too long on this subject, but it is an interesting one. At the end of 86, when I'd gone up to Honda, I went into this meeting and there was Gerard Ducarouge from uh, Lotus. Lovely man, got on with him perfectly well. But um, he had been sort of blowing in Honda's ear telling uh, Honda that, you know, that in a Lotus they would easily win the championship and they'd blow Williams away, so to speak. We were working and designing. I'd been talking to this chap, Katsumi Ichida, uh, for the whole of the year beforehand about the height of their engine because the oil filter was actually underneath the crankshaft, flat pack underneath the crankshaft. So the engine sat incredibly high in the car. And, if we, and I think it was something like 30... 33 millimeters or something that we could lower it and um, you're not only if you lower the engine you're lowering the gearbox as well so uh, I, I was talking and I, I worked out that the worst thing you could do to say to Honda was tell them how Cosworth did it because it almost <laughs> would make them go <laughs> off in the, so I was trying to put across to them that they could use the the air being twirled around in the crankcase by the crankshaft to sweep the oil into a channel which it would then scavenge out of it. When I went to Honda at the end of 86, Ichida called me in and said, come and have a look at this. And there they were running a rig with a low sump, which they'd cut and shut with welded an aluminium sump, and with um, 32, 33 millimetres lower. And I thought, this is great, because we were already assuming that it was going to run, and we were designing a much lower car, which would have been the FW12, not the one that ended up with the naturally aspirated engine for 88, but it would have been the FW12. And bloody Ducarouge, he'd said to them, I don't need a lower engine, we can win the championship with the engine as it is. And Honda didn't want to produce two different types of engine, they wanted the engine to be the same for the both. So they said to me, uh, no way, I got on with them fine, but Ducarouge was, and Senna was the golden thing at that time, so my word didn't uh, cut ice. So I was very pleased when we blew Lotus away with the same engine uh, and Ayrton Senna. Nothing against Senna. I mean, they did win some races, but from about the middle of the year or maybe um, from about the middle of the year, I think at Silverstone when Nigel beat Nelson, um, I think Senna was third and he was over a lap behind. So uh, it, was, it was very strong Williams. Uh, well ahead of Lotus but um, anyway so and that engine was the one that went to McLaren um, for the low Gordon had obviously done the low height of Brabham so he was influential in doing the low car and the low engine was the was the one that went to uh, um, went to McLaren but um, I think uh, it we won at Monza and went back and Honda said they wanted to have a meeting and this quite tough fellow 
Sakurai said uh, McLaren are going to be our lead team next year with Alan Prost, Ayrton Senna. Well, obviously, with those two drivers, they were going to be... And Honda were, quite rightly, if I say in love with Senna, I mean in the you know huge admiration they had for Ayrton Senna, for good, with good reason. Um, and it was, and we were told, um, you're to run Nelson Piquet and um, Nakajima, um, the Katsumi's dad, you know. And um, he was a perfectly passable driver, but it basically meant we had no chance in the Constructors' Championship. So Frank and I sat down and we talked about it and we said, sadly, we're not, we're not going to openly accept a position. We already had a contract for 1988, so they, but they said, we're going to tear it up. Um, and so it was pretty tough. It was very tough, really. And um, they uh, said, that's it. We'll supply you. We'll, we'll fulfill our contract with you, but only with Nelson Piquet and, and, and Nakajima. So it would have been meant saying goodbye to Nigel. And I think we had a contract with Nigel. So it was very complicated. Meanwhile, it felt lousy because there we were winning everything, beating their other team and um, and being told that they weren't going to be with us the next year. So uh, it was it was fairly un, unhappy. Um, but that was it. They, the thing is, they really needed us in 83, 84, 85 when they were miles away but but then they were end of 85 86 they were cock of the north and had a very high opinion of themselves and it'll be interesting to see whether that happens uh whether that happens uh, this time but um uh meanwhile um three years later when uh actually probably a bit more uh, some years later when kawamoto retired he said he wanted to come and uh, we always got on, you know, when we wanted to go out and I think we had one car with a running engine or something, they always gave us a help with that. We didn't, you know, they, you don't make total enemies in this world unless you're, you know, you'll end up with no friends at all. So, and Kawamoto uh, came and had lunch with Frank and I in the boardroom uh, when he retired and stuff. So, we, we, you know, we got on well with them. But, um, it was tough time in 87, latter half of 87, yeah. Um, I think that qualifies as the most comprehensively answered question ever on a Motorsport Magazine podcast. So it's a very <laughs> a lucky long. reader there who wrote in with that question. We we were out of time about 20 minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but what I'd love to do, I'd love just to finish with, um, do a quick uh, game of word association. So I'll say some names to you um, and some phrases. And if you just say the first thing that comes into your head, nice short answers i hope you can bleep them out some of the if they're so, well, instinct, you know what, if they're instinctive despite responses despite our audio guru's phone alarm going yeah, off yeah. mid-podcast i'm pretty sure he'll be able to manage that so <laughs> far, far away okay we'll, we'll start with frank williams passionate uh love of motorsport love of uh the 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 whole process of of racing cars um not very knowledgeable about the cars themselves but uh, uh, total determination and uh will to just total love for motor racing adrian newey uh 
obviously technical, very hugely capable uh, aerodynamicist crossover into what the rest of the car required for aerodynamics. Actually, very uh, competitive individual himself, which translates into his determination to be the best on the drawing board as well as we used to go karting sometimes in the evening, not just Adrian and I, but, you know, team karting. And Adrian was always hugely quick, but it was just a question of which hairpin you'd come across him facing the, the wrong way. <laughs> he, would always, he would always ultimately end up in spinning. <laughs> but he was, he was quick, but uh, over... Uh, I think he's become quite a good driver now in his E-types and his and his GT40s. But uh, at that time, I think his uh, his desire to win was ahead of his skill. Now, before we go on to the next question, I should remind you that we have a motorsport shop that is absolutely packed to the rafters with signed memorabilia, posters, books, models, and everything you could ever want from the world of motoring or motorsport. Have a look at Motorsport Magazine dot com forward slash shop what's more as a podcast listener you get a 10 percent discount on everything in the shop this is valid until the end of july and please use the code pod10 that's pod10 uh williams today sad uh that's a little unfair because um there are some fantastically good people there for various reasons, um, without necessarily wanting to say that the people are bad, they they have had a, a stream of technical leaders, who some of whom had skills, but have not been appropriate for leading a company like Williams, and steadily they've. Um, when you look at it, they're, you know, struggling to stay alive at the moment. And I think in truth, um, uh, I mean, Claire has done very well in putting together a, a significant budget for this year, which in the light of two years finishing 10th out of 10, uh, the thing about Formula One is there are no bad teams in there. And you can sit on your sofa with your tins of beer watching the Grand Prix and and throw rotten tomatoes at Williams at the back. But actually, um, all the teams in Formula One are very, very good. The problem is, uh, when you're 10th out of 10, it makes you look very, very bad. And quite clearly, you cannot run a Formula One team commercially finishing 10th out of 10th consistency. So for this year, it's very important that they get back in the hunt. Uh, I'm not naive enough to think that they'll be battling with the top three teams, but I hope that they will be in amongst what would be called the midfield or the lower midfield. But then from there, they've got to work their way back and, and upwards. Um, there are some good, good engineers there. Um, they, uh, I would say they do... Um, need a or some technical leaders um, uh, as you probably saw in an announcement yesterday or the day before maybe um, they've taken on uh, a very good guy from Red Bull and a good guy from Renault meanwhile I'm not suggesting there aren't some good guys there but they need technical leadership there I think and then finally 
Uh, we'll finish on Patrick Head. Oh, common. It must be more interesting than that. <laughs> but do, do you, do you must look back with great satisfaction as, with your career in uh, Williams. Actually, uh, the opposite, really, because... We'll, we'll, we'll end on a happy note then. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, actually, uh, you... I was always, you know, you go to a motor race, but, you know, for a long time we were a front-running team, and you go to a motor race with the intention of qualifying first and second, occupying the front row of the grid, uh, and finishing first and second in the race. And quite a lot of the times in various periods of Williams Pass, we managed to do that. And anything less than that, I always regarded as a failure. So, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't... Uh, uh, you know, thrash my back with birch twigs, but I don't look backwards on it. I, if I look at an old car, I'll I'll say, well, phew, why didn't we do better than that? I don't look at it. Uh, you know, one or two of them were maybe slightly ahead of their time and and leaders, but um, um, I don't look back on it with huge pleasure. And without elaborating on it at all, obviously the events at Imola in 1994 was a, a terrible thing to happen during that time and obviously that gives uh, no satisfaction so I, I don't you know I, I've got a young daughter and quite a relatively young wife um, two older kids that I get on with well my life is much more around them and uh, getting on so I don't look backwards and wake up in the middle of the night sweating with regret but uh, I really look back thinking, why didn't I do better? My grandfather actually wrote an autobiography, which I probably will never do, but he called his autobiography No Great Shakes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if I write one, maybe I'll adopt his title. Yeah. Well, Patrick, it has been an absolute pleasure, hugely fascinating. Um, and I think all of us here and everyone listening and, and watching uh, will disagree with your thoughts on your career. Um, but thank you for joining us. It's been absolutely wonderful. Joe, thank you so much for being here. Alan, thank you so much for recording. Thank you all for listening and for watching. We'll see you again soon. Bye-bye.